This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's governor says he's experiencing deja vu as Congress takes another crack at repealing and replacing Obamacare. What could the Graham-Cassidy bill mean for Colorado? It was Ryan Warner's lead question for Democrat John Hickenlooper when they spoke Wednesday at the state capitol. Governor, thank you for being with us again. Always a pleasure. This latest health care proposal cuts Medicaid, which expanded in this state under Obamacare, and along with eliminating many of the ACA's requirements, would transfer federal money for Medicaid and insurance subsidies to the states in the form of lump sum payments. You often talk about state innovation. Is there an opportunity here for Colorado to set its own course? Well, that would be feasible if the cuts weren't so draconian. And you know, I look at this, it's almost like Groundhog Day. Somebody said this. This is similar to the Senate bill the Republican Party tried to ram through a couple months ago, except this one's more draconian. In other words, the cuts are larger. So when I was looking and being briefed yesterday, it was $800 million to a $1 billion a year in cuts to what Colorado now receives. Now the more recent estimate is $1.5 billion a year, and that will ultimately over the next 10 years end up getting to $3 billion. That's specific to Colorado. Yes, that's specific to Colorado. So again, what it's doing is taking all those states that expanded Medicaid and penalizing them, taking back a huge chunk of the money that they've been receiving, and using that to you know, provide more coverage to those states that hadn't gotten covered with Medicaid. So what would that mean practically for Colorado? Cuts of that magnitude, who gets affected? Oh my gosh. I mean, you, we would dramatically have to roll back coverage. We would not have subsidies. Coverage of Medicaid? Coverage of Medicaid. But also we would not have the CSRs, you know, the cost-sharing reductions. And These help defray the cost of insurance? In the private, in the private world. So yeah. the small businesses, the individual insurance market. You know, if you take away those subsidies, I mean, literally 100,000 people, 150,000 people could lose their insurance coverage. So you're going to dramatically roll back Medicaid. You're going to dramatically diminish the stability of the private markets. And what are you really getting out of it? We have been working with Senator Murray and Senator Alexander on bipartisan hearings in the Senate on health care and really beginning to make progress, provide stability for a year or two, and then move on to the cost savings that, again, All of us, Republicans and Democrats, all of us governors agree that we need to find ways to limit the inflation that we've had in medical care for decades. At this point, then, do you think bipartisan health care reform is dead on arrival? No, I don't think so, because I I mean, the Senate has always been the, the conscience of the country. And I think it's appropriate that it becomes that last bastion that says, Let's go back to regular order where you need 60 votes to pass something. Let's go back to hearings and bringing in experts and maybe even occasional governors of both parties, governors being the people that have to implement these regulations. Let me say that you were one of 10 governors to sign a letter to Congress this week continuing to push for a bipartisan solution. Yeah, we had four Republicans, five Democrats, and an independent really focused on how do we provide stability in the private markets but also cost savings. On the subject of costs, there are many Coloradans who have seen their premiums for insurance increase. Under the Graham-Cassidy proposals, insurers could charge more for pre-existing conditions, but they wouldn't have to provide maternity care, mental health coverage. Certainly that would represent a sacrifice for some, but is there a hunger in Colorado for bare-bones, affordable plans? That is one of the big questions, is what is a bare-bones plan, what is appropriate. If you allow insurance companies just a little wiggle room to get out from 
you know, pre-existing conditions, then those people that have had cancer, those people that are dealing with uh, dialysis or, you know, end-stage renal disease, those folks, those individuals are going to be really out of luck. But, that but being, the state could spend its block grants from the federal government to ensure those most sure, in if, need. If we could come close to what, what the need was. I think your question of whether we are willing to look at a leaner uh, insurance program so that people don't quite get everything that they get now, that should be one of the forms of savings. But all of this assumes that the Senate will listen to these proposals. And is there anything else that you're doing to sway that body? Or have you talked with Senator Gardner of Colorado at this point? Senator Gardner and I have had a couple of discussions. and He's he, been a reliable vote for the Republicans on these plans. But he's also someone who's really been thinking about this. And this last weekend, I can tell you, because I talked to him on Monday, uh, he went and visited several hospitals in the mountains. And he heard loud and clear what they were saying. And I think he's what trying to... What were they to, saying? They were saying that they don't want to be, have these uh, supports for their providing of care uh, yanked out from under them. And all these supports, one way or another, come down hardest on our rural health care providers. That's who's most at risk. So when Senator Gardner says, you know, I'm not crazy about this, and he did give me assurance that he was going to look at it very closely, that he was going to make sure it got scored so we wouldn't go out and, and, and vote for something before we really knew what those impacts to Colorado would be. Though it is possible that that vote comes next week before the Congressional Budget Office can come up with a score. Well, I think that the, the Budget Office is going to try and hustle and get a score. And it may be that there are preliminary numbers from the CBO before then. To another issue now, immigration. You are suing President Trump over his decision to end a program that protects immigrants brought illegally to this country as children. It's called DACA. You joined the lawsuit with 15 other states, but without the support of Colorado's Attorney General, Republican Cynthia Kaufman. Why do you feel this needs to be done? Well, you know, I'm not a, a big one for lawsuits. I've, you know, my 15 years in the restaurant business, I never sued anyone. I never got sued. DACA is such fundamental common sense that these kids came when they were one or two or three years old for the most part. They've never known another home. They are as American as any of us. What President Obama was trying to do with DACA, with deferred action, was to allow them to come out of the shadows and continue their education to actually have a working permit that doesn't make them a citizen, it doesn't break any rules, but allows them to work. Now, he did this through executive order, and opponents of DACA argue in part that that's unconstitutional, that it's Congress's domain. And that's where the issue is now, because the president has given Congress six months to act. If you're such an advocate of the program, why wouldn't you want to have it solidified into law? I do. Are you kidding me? I am 100%. I will march up and down the aisles of Congress until they throw me out. Because So why sue and not wait for Congress to act? Because I think in this case, the lawsuit becomes a prod. This is something I have a great sense of urgency. I know a bunch of these kids. And for them to have come out of the shadows, they felt they had an agreement with the U.S. government. If they came forward and provided their address and their, their, you know, how to contact them, where they live, their work history, everything, that then they would be in some way protected. So now to pull that rug out from under them, to me, seems the height of deceit. And certainly if you look at the transition of what President Trump has said along the way, he's beginning to feel that way a little bit too, that he, I think, is clearly more sympathetic to these kids and would also like Congress to find a way of solving the problem. 
Now, you recently made a decision in the case of a Colorado immigrant, Ingrid Encalada Latore. She asked you for a pardon from a criminal conviction in hopes that it would help persuade federal authorities not to deport her. You said no to that request. She's now got 30 days to get her affairs in order and leave the country. In a statement, you said pardoning her would be a step backward in the fight for immigration reform. Uh, Why would it set those reform efforts back? Well, it is a challenge. Anytime you have a case like this, it truly is heartbreaking. I mean, my... She has children here. She has a two-year-old and an eight-year-old. She has worked so hard to support them. Her dream of being able to participate in the American dream is a dream that most of our ancestors at one time or another shared. But A, the crime, identity theft. She stole someone's name and social security number to get employment. Right. And that person's still having problems. That person went through, I mean, basically their bank accounts were attached. Their, their lives were turned upside down. The harm there means you don't think that a pardon is, is warranted. Well, in, a, in a funny way, many people would take that as identity theft is okay because this person is really struggling. And I think that's the wrong message. Anytime you do a pardon, and we have a whole list of issues that we look at, but one of the biggest ones is we want to make sure that we're not in any way uh, setting a precedent. In other words, we want to make sure that the crime happened long enough ago and that, if possible, the victims forgive. And I mean, there's a whole list. But you did pardon another immigrant earlier this year, Rene Lima Marine, who's trying to avoid deportation to Cuba. His story is complicated. He was convicted of robbing two video stores, sentenced to 98 years, and mistakenly paroled early. When that mistake was discovered, he was sent back to prison. Meanwhile, he and his supporters argued that while he was free, he had rebuilt his life. And uh, you pardoned Lima Marine, but not Encalada Latore. I'll point out that uh, in Lima Marine's case, the victim also opposed the pardon. So what's the difference? Sure, and that's not a universal. That's one one of a long list. But, I mean, Lima Marine came here when he was two. He had gotten an outrageous sentence for what his crime was. But also keep in mind that a judge had looked and said that the government's conduct towards him was unconstitutional. In other words, they said he should be set free. They're very different cases. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's governor, John Hickenlooper. For a moment now to a snafu in a law passed last spring, one that has prompted you to call a special session next month, a bill meant to help the state get more money for hospitals, transportation, and schools, mistakenly ended up cutting money that goes to special districts. So this is uh, like Metro Denver's RTD transit system, arts institutions. Uh, Do you have a plan in the works to fix this, that you sort of hand the legislature, or do they come up with something on their own? Well, I think we work together. This is a pretty simple fix, right? It's a it was an oversight, and it was, I mean, Republicans signed the bill, Democrats signed the bill. Our office looked over the bill, so I think there's plenty of blame to share. You take some of that? Sure, of course. What's this going to cost taxpayers, by the way? We're not sure, but generally we think we can keep it to about $25,000 a day, and by statute we have to have three days to get the law passed to fix it. So $75,000, but this is costing all those institutions, and one of them out in Gunnison, another one's out in, on the West Slope, the far West Slope near Grand Junction, you know, it's $600,000 per month. Why don't we wrap up by talking about Amazon? Uh, the company plans to build a second headquarters, a $5 billion facility somewhere in North America. They say it'll bring in 50,000 new jobs. 
with average salaries of about $100,000. But Amazon's going to ask for big financial incentives. This state has a booming economy, record low unemployment. There's clearly interest on the part of some in attracting Amazon. Why should Colorado pay Amazon for the privilege of coming here? Well, one thing that a company like Amazon provides to a community, it dramatically... You're going to say traffic. ...expands your uh, capacity for for entrepreneurship and for innovation. Amazon is famous for spinning off small businesses that come out of it. So it allows you to grow and allows you to make additional investments in your infrastructure for transportation. It makes it easier by having more people. Amazon wants to be in an urban part of the, of the metropolitan area, wherever they go. So they're not going to go out and sprawl, which is what makes more traffic problems. They're going to probably try to get concentrated on one campus somewhere close to the downtown. It's got to be within, I think, 45 minutes of the airport is what I heard. There's some talk of the storage tech facility, you know, that big facility along 36. Yeah, it's a monster facility. But again, all kinds of possibilities there that our job is to work with the local communities and make sure that we find those three or four or five most compelling possibilities and then make sure that Amazon knows all the other reasons of why Colorado might be a better choice than, uh, than the other parts of the United States. But you're saying whatever incentives Colorado or some particular municipality offers is worth it because of that spin-off culture around Amazon, well, you, that it can expect more than that. We don't offer the same kinds of incentives that, that you saw in Wisconsin, right, when they were trying to get the Apple manufacturer, Foxconn, to come from China and have these big offices, billions of dollars. We are always going to lose in terms of the size of our subsidy that we can offer. And in most cases, not every case, but in almost every case, even when you add in the local and the state incentives, we still break even. In other words, what we're supplying to the company is still less than the tax revenues we receive per employee. Hmm. And we're providing the subsidy in most cases just for five years. I haven't asked you, I suppose point blank, do you want Amazon 2, H- H2? Yeah, I think HQ2? I think it is important that we look at what can Amazon do for us and that that be part of the discussion. What are the places where they're culture of innovation could help us solve problems that are vexing for the entire state. What do you say to people about the Amazon question who just say, you know what? Enough growth already. We're growing fast enough. Governor, put on the brakes a bit. I mean, we're not throwing money around like anybody else, but this state learned the hard way what happens when you put on the brakes. Nothing stays the same. So you're either expanding jobs or you're contracting. Now, you can slow the rate of expansion, but that's very hard. Back when we turned our back on the Olympics, we were awarded the Olympics for 1976, 1972. We had a vote, and we said, we don't want it. And basically, we put a big, we're busy, go somewhere else. We don't want to grow anymore in Colorado. Colorado grew anyway, it turns out. Well, for 20 years, it struggled to grow. And if you go back and look at the recession we had in the mid-1980s, from 1982 till really until about 1991 was how long it it affected Colorado. I think there's a fair argument to say that we, when, when, when you don't grow organically, you don't have a diversity of your economy, a lot of different types of jobs and industries, then you get dependent on one or two types of, 
sources of, of jobs. In that case, we were dependent upon oil and gas. Right, we but we're not, the economy is much more diverse now than it was then. And there's for reasons. It's because we have been carefully growing and making sure that we pass fast tracks to build our infrastructure in, in place. I mean, the challenge to me, we still didn't pass a, a, a legitimate, necessary infrastructure bill last year. And that's going to be the priority of this next General Assembly, is all right, if we're going to grow... And again, if you say you don't want to grow, boy, it's hard to restart it. Once your growth stops and you say, well, we're going to take a break for a few years, you don't just turn it on like a faucet. And I think there's also likely to be a ballot measure in the next election that has to do with transportation exactly. as well. Exactly. But if we, have, if we can build that infrastructure, if the growth is concentrated in urban areas, then I think it's a benefit to the entire state. And we use that growth to make sure that we do get broadband, we can afford broadband in every municipal town in the entire state, no matter how small or how rural. Governor, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. He speaks regularly at the state capitol with my colleague Ryan Warner. Life for Colorado native Alex Blum looked bright, a former Littleton High School hockey star from a well-to-do, close-knit Littleton family. His goal to become an elite U.S. Army Ranger had been met, and he was off to Iraq. But during his final hours on U.S. soil, Alex wasn't hugging his girlfriend or saying goodbye to his family. He was committing armed robbery. The new book, Ranger Games, digs deep into the question, why? Ben Blum is the author. He joins me from New York City. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me here. Now, your last name is not a coincidence. You are Alex's cousin, and you grew up with him here in Colorado. Give us a quick snapshot of him. Why did everyone, including yourself, see him as this all-American kid? Alex was uh, almost cartoonishly well-behaved as a kid. He was um, a profoundly loyal, patriotic, idealistic um, uh, hockey player and a good big brother to his his little brother and sister. He... um, he was kind of the goody two-shoes of the family. Um, and so his army dreams fit perfectly with, with the character that we all saw in him growing up. And uh, and a bank robbery absolutely did not fit. Right. And he was living the Ranger code, as you write in the book. It was essentially a part of him inside and out, right? Yeah. Um, he was dedicated to the dream of becoming a Ranger for years before he, he finally made the cut in the Ranger indoctrination program and joined the regiment. Um, he studied the um, soldier's handbook for for um, months in high school before enlisting so that he would know everything he, he needed to know in advance. And he knew all that there was to know about the Rangers, including, as, as you say, the Ranger Creed, a six-point um, uh, list of the values that a Ranger holds closest, among them never letting down your comrades, never disgracing your country. And what about uh, the the classmate? He saved a classmate's life. I mean, it was something that he just had inside of him to always be there for people. We knew him as a protector of others. Um, he has always had a, a very powerful nurturing streak in him. And so, yes, there was a, a classmate who um, passed out at a party. He was um, choking on his own vomit in a, in a back room and Alex 
um, went back to check on him and um, and saved his life by clearing the, the vomit from his throat and, and reviving him. And he continued to check up on him for weeks after. It was just it was just one of many little incidents like that of, of Alex looking out for the little guys and trying to uphold this kind of heroic soldier image that he um, saw himself as. What were your interactions with Alex uh, when you both were younger? Did you know him very well? I knew him in the way that cousins know each other when they <laughs> when they grow up nearby. Um, we were constantly in the same room. Um, we had a lot of family barbecues. Uh, we got together for holidays. It was it was a, a tight knit family. Our fathers were close, um, but he was younger than me, um, and I was just a total math geek growing up. So um, culturally speaking, we just we were in different universes. He was dreaming of running off playing commando in, in the fields behind our houses. And, and I was um, thinking about Fibonacci numbers and, uh, and manifolds and crazy math stuff. Alex uh, graduated from Littleton High School, uh, if I'm right. And it was, it was right off to basic training. And he actually wrote a long essay about it, which you put in your book. Now, much of it includes language and situations that we can't share on on the air. But I'd like you to read a small section for us. It's the part where Alex talks about being broken down by negative reinforcement. Sure, I'd be glad to. This nonstop, continuous negative reinforcement erases any and all self-confidence you once had. You firmly believe that you can't do anything right. At the time, you can't see that they are intentionally and methodically breaking you down, removing all of your self-esteem. You just believe that you are incompetent and unworthy of anything. You operate under complete and total fear and try to do anything to avoid more pain, embarrassment, and humiliation. And, and this went on for quite some time. It's part of breaking down someone to become an elite army ranger. How did this training shape him? He never saw combat. He committed the robbery uh, right before he shipped out to Iraq. So it seems this was a pivotal part in his life where he maybe saw some change. Yeah, um, we did see some dramatic changes in Alex's personality in the um, over the course of the basic training process, which is about um, three months long, and then jump school and and another month of the ranger indoctrination program. Um, He had always been very easygoing, friendly, funny, bubbly, um, and uh, suddenly we couldn't connect him. He he was kind of manifesting what seemed to us a a persona, a macho, stiff persona, um, the only ones that he felt able to connect to after going through these extreme and, and, and very painful, isolating, scary um, training processes where other people who had, who had gone through them and who understood just how painful and difficult it was. Now, this doesn't seem different than, than many people going through, through basic training and, and Army Ranger training, right? There's nothing special here about that. No question. Yeah. Um, I think the, um, there were numerous factors at play in bringing Alex to this alley behind a Bank of America that day um, in, in his, his dad's Audi. Um, the second big factor is his team leader when he was first assigned to the Range Regiment, Luke Elliott Summer, who was a specialist at the time. I think the way that his training played into that was um, it, uh, it primed him to look uncritically at the soldiers above him, especially those with combat experience, as paragons of the highest ideal of, of, of virtue. Um, his civilian family and his civilian values had been denigrated so thoroughly 
during his training that he was um, extremely vulnerable to uh, corruption, to being presented with a new set of values that masqueraded as Ranger values, but were really something far darker. Did this change surprise you and your family? Were, were they taken aback or were they just like, well, this is what happens when you become an Army Ranger? Uh, more the latter. Hmm. None of us um, had military experience. Our um, grandfather, Alex's and my grandfather, served in World War II. Um, and we did have some family legends about him passed down. But like many civilians nowadays, with a, uh, in, in this age of a volunteer army, um, rather than the draft, which comes from a kind of military caste that's largely insulated from civilian culture. In this era, I think civilians have a very romantic, unrealistic view of military life in large part shaped by Hollywood. Um, so we were kind of prepared to um, believe anything in a way. Um, I think seeing Alex transform so much was surprising to us, but we, we just thought of it as what happened to soldiers. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Ben Blum, the author of the new book, Ranger Games, a story of soldiers, family, and an inexplicable crime. It focuses on his cousin, Alex, who, to the surprise of all who knew him, committed armed bank robbery days before shipping out to Iraq as an elite army ranger. So was it that he didn't know right from wrong at this point, that the army ranger creed was so embedded that he just followed whomever into battle? That was this this army specialist, Luke Elliott Summer. Can you tell a bit more about him and how he uh, may have impacted uh, Alex's life? Sure. Yeah, I don't think it's accurate to say that Alex didn't know right from wrong. The okay. military has its own sense of right and wrong, which is very, very strictly enforced. Um it's just that it happens to be quite different than the civilian sense of right and wrong. I mean, in a civilian life, of course, it's that the highest wrong is, is killing someone. And as a, a soldier, that is part of the job description. So there is a, a new value system that, that you have to learn to adopt. But of course, there is misbehavior as a soldier. There is wrongful killing. There is um, straying outside the bounds of what you're supposed to do. Um, and Summer was kind of masterful at walking the line between what looked like um, legitimate training and what turned out to be preparation for crime. So um, it's a fairly common practice in, in Ranger Battalion. Um, these are elite guys whose specialty is taking down small buildings. Um, to to walk out into Tacoma, walk into, say, a Dairy Queen, a Quiznos, um, or uh, a bank, for instance, and um, to assess the tactical problem that this facility represented. How would a team of guys move in here, take control of it, um, get out with a package, which in um, in a military mission would be, for instance, a terrorist leader, but in a heist might be a sack full of money. Um, and Summer, Summer ran those kinds of thought experiments with privates like Alex all the time. They went into restaurants, they went into stores, they went into movie theaters and, and had these, these thought experiments. Uh, and we should mention uh, Tacoma uh, it was where this base was. Is that correct? Where they were all stationed? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about the day of the robbery. How did it go down in Alex's eyes? And, and how was it explained to your family once it actually happened? Well, as um, it was explained to us at first, it came about very suddenly. Um, Alex had been um, casing various, various facilities with Summer as part of what he thought was a normal, informal training process of, of picking up extra skills from um, superiors. But on the day of the robbery, um, Summer, uh, as Alex described it to us at first, um, Summer asked him for his keys, 
uh, wanted to borrow his car for something, came and asked for soft armor, and then all of a sudden he calls Alex to come down, and there are um, three other guys there with the car, um, and Summer asks him to drive to the bank. Um, but uh, the more that I researched the story, the more glimmers started to come in of a much more complicated story. Um, the line between game and reality was fuzzing one way and then the other for um, for days preceding the crime. So there were discrepancies in the facts and things like that. Now, in your research, you, you find an email from Luke Elliott Summer, which adds this surprising element to Alex's account of his involvement in this crime. Can you read that email for me? Sure. Yeah. This is an email from Summer to Alex's father, Norm. Warning. The following is a harsh reality check. You honestly believe that your son, who you have known for his entire life, never dreamed of being involved in this? He helped me plan it, Norm. You are so naive because you want to believe in your heart the best about your son. The truth is, I never intended to get your son compromised, but when I shot it out in the dark, he didn't slap it down. He helped me recruit. Your son is not the stupid, naive kid that you make him out to be. He is a charismatic, intelligent ranger. So there's definitely something else going on. And, and that took everyone aback, at least in your family. What, what were some of the other discrepancies that you discovered briefly? Um, yeah. Uh, other very minor discrepancies included, for instance, um, the uh, accounts of the other defendants from um, the crime. There were three others, correct, that, including Alex? That's right, three others. Um, uh, they gave varying accounts of, of whether they'd seen the driver one time or a second time. Um, Alex told us that he had um, tried to drive away after dropping the guys off at the bank, seeing them run down the alley with AK-47s. Because he was um, in the car waiting. He was in that Audi waiting. That's right. Alex was the driver for the bank robbery. Um, but some of the accounts of the others um, said that actually the driver had been um, on had been sort of circling the block. Um, some did, in fact, say they couldn't find him afterward and, and just happened to stumble on him in a side street, but accounts conflicted. Um, and uh, the biggest source of discrepancies, though, was, was Summer himself, who I began speaking to and who I eventually visited and, and, and interviewed in a high-security penitentiary in Kentucky, who insisted that Alex had knowingly and willfully gone along with this from the start um, and had known outright that it was, in fact, a criminal plan. And you researched all aspects of this story, painfully going through corrupted MSN messenger chats, speaking to those at the bank during the robbery, those involved, digging deeper into Ranger training and Army jargon. Did this consume your life? I, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I became obsessed with it. So, um, well, why write the book then? If you had you known when you started this would take such a huge chunk of your life, because it was years that you, that you took writing this book. Yeah, it was, uh, and I had no idea what I was in for. My original plan was to take. I was a, a scientist at the time. I was working toward a PhD in computational biology. The plan was to take maybe a year to write a book clearing Alex's name as I conceived the project then, hmm. um, and then to get back to my life. Um, but as the complexities mounted and as the dissonance grew between 
my cousin, whom I, I love, um, who seemed to be really trying to grapple honestly with the truth. Um, and this all this evidence of other stuff, the dissonance between that just drove me nuts. I, I somehow couldn't let it go um, and ended up digging and digging and digging for almost a decade. And, and the book lays bare this inner workings of your family, this close-knit group of people, uh, their thoughts, their feelings, their struggles. How have they reacted to this book finally being released to the public? The reaction um, has been amazingly supportive and, and, and really quite moving to experience. Um, I held a reading at a tattered cover um, in Aspen Grove about a week ago um, that Alex attended along with Norm um, and some other family members. And it it was just the most profoundly cathartic experience. I think um, this is a story that none of us had really processed fully or, or come to grips with. And I've come to believe that there is a tremendous um, possibility for healing when we look more closely at, at how accountable we might be um, for, uh, for wrongdoing. Ben, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Ben Blum's book is called Ranger Games, A Story of Soldiers, Family, and an Inexplicable Crime. You can read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There was a competition recently for hospital chefs in Colorado, and bland jello was nowhere to be found. Palisade peach and homemade ice cream with a uh, blackberry balsamic caviar. Pumpkin flan with roasted pepitos on top, and a bourbon caramel glaze on the bottom. Smoked elk tenderloin with a candied bacon wrap on it, baby carrots, fresh asparagus, blackberry, demi-gloss that went with it with chutney. That's Chef Ben Patterson, sous chef Jennifer Hill, and Chef Robert Reynolds. Reynolds says they wanted to send a message. You can go to a country club and get good food. Why not come to a hospital and get good food? Or good home-style mom-pop food, you know, stuff that people are real comfortable with. You're sick, you want something good to eat. Another chef who competed and won is Joe Colclasher. He worked at St. Anthony Hospital in Ortho, Colorado in Lakewood. Joe, welcome to the program. Welcome, Nathan. Good to be here. So, chutney, blackberry balsamic caviar, bourbon caramel glaze, this doesn't sound like your typical hospital food. Were there dietary constraints you had to adhere to when creating these dishes? I mean, since I'm assuming some people recovering at a hospital can't have a, a whiskey demi-glaze. <laughs> You're correct. Um, a lot of it was a showcase for what the chefs in the hospitals can actually do. I see. Um, of course, in the hospital setting, we are con- constrained to a lot of different diets. I know in uh, my hospitals that I oversee, there's over 200 diets that we've got to match in our patients uh, because of different demographics, different acuity levels and everything else. It was a great opportunity for us to showcase that, you know, hospital chefs are actually chefs. We're not cooks. We're not opening bags. We're not adding water. Um, We actually know what we're doing. And I want to thank all the other competitors that were with me. They all did a great job. And I think we showed well. What were the dishes you and your team cooked up for this competition? Well, fortunately, the two that I entered, we won both in appetizer and entree rounds. Um, I did a smoked elk 
with ancho barbecue sauce and a mm. grilled palisade peach with uh, fresh hatch green chilies on top of it and some Colorado goat cheese. Um, the Colorado theme was um, our focus for the event, and uh, we really wanted to compile as many flavors and textures that are local uh, to our community and really show well. Um, our entree was a delicious Colorado lamb loin um, that we sous vide in uh, mustard and garlic and tarragon and basil, and we let it really get some great moisture and flavors, and we pan-seared it and uh, served it with a celery react, celery react mash. That was tough to say. Sorry okay. about that. It's still early. <laughs> Only on one cup of coffee. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, let's say it's flavorful, and it, it was tasty, I am assuming. <laughs> it was fabulous and delicious, and um it was great to show. Why Why did you want to compete? Was it really to say, hey, we can do more than just your typical mashed potatoes and, and, and chicken that, that you see on so well, many plates I, in a hospital? Yeah, I don't want to say we. I think it was more self-driven, you know. Oh, I see. Having be, have a little bit of an ego being a chef, I uh, worked in fine dining and resort hotels for most of my life. I took this over about nine years ago in the healthcare field and really wanted to transform people's thoughts and opinions um, on what hospital food is. Cause many times I'll meet somebody and they say, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a hospital chef. I oversee two hospitals and they say, oh, hospital food. Well, you know, because that's the stigma. Yeah. I mean, you turn on a TV, you listen to a radio, you uh, listen to comedians, of course. Uh, I went in, got some Jello. I couldn't even do that right. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of an ego boost thing. I really wanted to show my chops and let people know that, hey, we really do know what we're doing. And uh, I'm sure I know for the competitors and myself, we'd compete with anybody in the city, restaurant, hospital, hotel, you name it, we're there. And you mentioned you worked in hotels and, and fine dining. What brought you then to healthcare? You know, that's a good question. Um, you can't see me because I'm on the radio, but I'm a little older in life now. And after spending 25 odd years in uh a real high volume, high expectation, pressure driven business where you're working 70, 80 hours a week. I really wanted to transform uh, my lifestyle. Um, it's given me a chance to have a better quality of life. I work uh, 40 to 50 hours a week now. Um, not those late Friday, Saturday nights and uh, waiting for the push and have a lot of angry customers at the door because they want in late and um, it's been a great transition. Got to help uh, work with a transition to a new hospital uh -huh. from St. Anthony Central over to St. Anthony Hospital. Got to help uh, work on some design and some architects. And uh, it really allowed me to grow both professionally and personally. Were you able to, to bring your vision then from this other industry into the needs of a hospital setting? Because I'm assuming you wanted that high quality of food. But again, like you said, you're dealing with over 200-something different diets and mm -hmm. stuff like that. No, you're absolutely correct. And uh, it was kind of a um, struggle at the beginning because, you know, I had delusions of grandeur and uh, really wanted to make a successful impact. But then I, you know, got the constraints of the dietary needs and also, you know, the different patient appetites, the demographics, people that were usually coming to my restaurants or the hotel were affluent and they were healthy and um, they really demanded a lot. But I still demanded a lot from me and my team and what we serve to our patients. Um, we've done a great job with that of pairing the dietary needs and restrictions and transforming that into a plate that any restaurant would be proud of. 
And I think we're very successful with that. So you found that balance. I, I oh, we so. found that balance. And I've had the luxury of working with a great group of people that uh, helped morph me and morph my uh, visions into something we can all agree on and we can present proudly. And uh, we, I think we do that. Talking about healthcare, you you have to talk about the expensive nature of healthcare. You know, compared to other countries, and and when resources are used on things like food, that can bring up the cost. How do you balance that? Wanting to provide this improved food, but also the cost of being in a hospital. Well, you know, that's a good question. You know, of course, patients don't get a bill for the food at the end, and they don't have to tip their servers. But uh, I, I have the luxury of working with an uh, international company, Sodexo. Um, we're in over 100 con- countries worldwide. And I got to meet a person from England who their food service is basically out of a factory. They do 40,000 meals and there's no variety. There's no choice for the patients. So here in the United States, you know, competition is key because you'll, you'll get a better service. Um, you'll get a better product and you'll get a better experience. So, you know, we offer a room service program and our room service program is a restaurant design menu mm-hmm. uh, that you can pick and choose from. And then we validate it based on your dietary needs. And so that's one of the tough parts about being a hospital chef is trying to balance the whole menu so no, you're not getting told, no, you can't have that. Right. So working with some nutritionists and uh, a lot of the team members, we were able to drive into that. So how much of this is then presentation then? Let's say like like the, the, the cup of jello. You know, how, how do you – make it presentable to someone? Is, it a, is, it, is that the balance there? To make it look good, it doesn't have to be, you know. No, 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 no. F- food quality is the key to any presentation. Uh, it can look good and you can get a big happy feeling in your heart when you see it. But if it doesn't taste good, that, that feeling is going to subside. So we really, really um, strive on presentation. And uh, I, I sent over some pictures to Michael, and hopefully you guys can post those up on yeah, what type of stuff we serve. Yeah. We'll have it up and, there for you. And, um, you know, you don't have to break a leg or uh, come in for surgery to eat some of our good food. We have a great cafe. We feature health and wellness um, type of items. Um, we have a mindful program. Over 60% of our entrees and sides are, uh, meet all the nutritional requirements to be a healthy, a healthy dish. Joe, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate no problem. It. I appreciate it. Anytime. Joe Kokleshire is the executive chef at St. Anthony Hospital in Ortho, Colorado in Lakewood. Last week, both his appetizer and entree won in a cook-off for hospital chefs at a charity event for kids with parents who have cancer. Denver will interrupt some regularly scheduled programming this week. You know those giant LED screens downtown that usually run a lot of ads? Well, instead of promotions, some of them will broadcast art. It's all part of the Supernova Outdoor Digital Animation Festival. Ivar Zaley directs the event. He spoke with CPR arts reporter Corey Jones. Ivar, this is a free festival, and a big reason for that is because of where it happens. Uh, What makes this location a good place to watch these videos? Well, this is a great location to watch the videos simply because our premier LED screen is located at 14th and Champa. It's a massive screen on the side of the Colorado Convention Center parking garage. And so just the scale of that screen and its location is really dynamic. I sort of liken it to a drive-in movie theater right in the heart of downtown. Yeah, and that's a a busy intersection. Uh, Does the city shut down those streets? 
Uh, the city does not shut down the streets. In fact, it's very difficult to shut down that street. But we don't really worry about that. There's so much traffic going through there. We really like the idea that the exposure comes to those that are not suspecting it to be there and that that really makes the character of the festival. You can stand on the sidewalk and watch. We do kick out a few parking spots that people can set up chairs at. But it's just a, a busy intersection that has this screen situated right at the heart of it. And your main screen is right at 14th and Champa, but then you also have a temporary screen that you guys put up. Yes. One of our partners is Denver Arts and Venues, and they wanted to have an activation in the Denver Performing Arts Complex Galleria. The advantage that we get by um, locating a temporary screen there is that, A, it is actually sheltered. It's it's still open air, but it has a rooftop over it. And then um, there is a just a beauty to having this corridor where we can set up seating. It just offers a better perspective for some of the programming to be watched. Saturday's Supernova Festival is the second annual. We'll talk more about what to expect. But first, why did you start this event? I mean, animation's been around for a long time. It's very popular. But digital techniques are starting to infiltrate what, you know, has largely been a hand-built process. And the reason for that is technology is phenomenal now. Um, Artists can create anything that their imaginations can conceive of, largely with a computer now. And as I've been researching and developing this project for the last five years, you really see what's happening through online activity and centers where where a lot of that's occurring. And so the reason why we focus on digital animation as opposed to motion art in general is the collaboration with the LED screens. It's technology with technology. It's a color spectrum that really shows itself off well with digital animation. And part of it was this idea of saying, hey, here's something that Denver can call its own as a festival. We know it's unique in the world. And the timing is just right to initiate that. The wealth of content that's being created in the world, I think, really substantiated making it a festival. Have you modeled this festival after a similar event elsewhere? Surely other cities have these big LED screens. I mean, I think of Times Square. There's no other city that we've modeled this project off of. The Times Square example, they call it the midnight moment. And, you know, they turn over the screens for one minute to one artist. It's a cool spectacle, but it's actually limiting the artists and limiting what kind of works can be shown generally to abstract works. And we've decided that what the forum needs is to not have limitations to show that there is seriousness to the artists that are working in this medium and that most of them are still largely undiscovered. You will screen around 140 shorts in downtown Denver. There are music videos, abstract pieces, even a block of kid-friendly films. What would you like to see come out of this festival? The primary goal from the start with this project is to one day have an LED placed into the public context that's not just for one day of animation, but that's permanently there for motion art and and particularly digital animation and show people around the world that this is the future of public art. It's not just something that, you know, should be taken in at home. Ivar Zaley is speaking with CPR arts reporter Corey Jones. The Supernova Festival runs from 3 to 10 p.m. on Saturday in downtown Denver. You can find details and preview some videos at CPRnews.org.
And that's our show. Thanks to my director, Michael Hughes, and board op Shane Rumsey, producers Michael Elizabeth and Anthony Cotton. Our edit- executive editor is Ryan Warner, managing producer Rachel Estabrook. And you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters. Have a great day.